You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 71. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, Paul and I talk about other things you can record in the field, from sound to scents to even tastes, and of course, augmented and virtual reality and all the things that means. Let's get to it. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Just, uh, you know chilling here in Reno in summertime, uh, or what it feels like most of the days. <laughs> it's, it's like almost it's mid mid January and it feels like late spring. Actually. Um, it's pretty crazy. I know you're feeling the exact opposite as me. Uh, right now though, about a week ago it was up in the fifties. So, you know, oh, it's just been rocking up and down crazy, crazy, uh, gyrations in the weather this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, weather, uh, weather effects like that could, um, could have a serious impact on how you record an archaeology site because some of the things we're going to talk about today are some of the some of the non-standard things that people might actually be not thinking about when they're recording a site um, and I want to talk about that uh, one one thing that actually made me think about doing this episode is I worked for a, a company a long time ago that just as uh, they didn't actually send this out to the report they just had it for their own purposes and I don't know whose idea this was but it was standard procedure to do this um, for their cameras, they just use the the typical point and shoot, you know, with the lens that extends out camera. Um, mm-hmm. And somebody would take all their somebody would do all the site photography, whoever the photographer was for the day. They would do all the site photography, features, artifacts, things like that. Uh, and then they would do the you know we always do at least two site overviews from outside the site boundary, looking in towards the datum. And then they would come into the site datum, and they would usually start north, so every video was the same, and they'd run a video going clockwise from north and all the way back around and describing what they see in the video. So if there's any prominent, um, you know, like named mountain peaks or anything like that in the background, uh, all the way from out there to like close in features and things like that, like, oh, there's feature two, there's feature three, you know, and we come back around to the south and here's feature five and we come back around to the east and something like that. And I always thought that that was kind of a really neat thing to do. And I don't know why it, it, well, I know why that's not submitted with the uh, with the site records because there's no actual way to do that typically um, to submit other media with your thing because we're usually submitting these as like a, a flat PDF that doesn't that doesn't have that ability. Now you can put like 3D models and different things into PDFs uh, if you have Adobe Acrobat Pro, um, but it, it makes a complicated PDF and it's not really easy to do and it's not standard practice by any means. So. Today, we're going to talk about stuff like that, though. What are some of the other things that you can record on a site that, you know, some of them are going to be complicated and you're going to need extra equipment and some of them are not. Um, we're just going to have to, you know, talk about it and kind of throw out some ideas. So, Paul, do you want to kick off our, our checklist and pick something on there and and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it? Well, this isn't even really on the checklist, I think. Um, just a quick scan of it. Yeah. Uh, 360 photos, maybe it falls under that. Uh, you're talking about the video standing on the site and uh, and slowly walking around and explaining what you see. Uh, back in the grad school days, one of my friends was going to start up a new project. He was looking at a little tell site, a little medieval site in Syria. And he went and took hundreds of pictures from like two or three spots on this little site. And it's in Northern Syria and really bleak, flat landscape and just took picture after picture, after picture, after picture, yeah. and then had a slideshow. We were doing this, this series of, um, of brown bag lunches. And so he had a slideshow of this and spent at least 20 minutes <laughs> going picture oh to God. picture. This is me standing at the well going clockwise. There's nothing there. This is me <laughs> a little farther clockwise. There's nothing there. Uh, I'm just saying this because it was really kind of funny. It pretty well killed that whole uh, brown bag series. <laughs> um, <laughs> nobody could follow That's up after that. <laughs> uh, but it is something that is much more succinctly done uh, with 3D photos nowadays, and the and the equipment for that is is coming down in price quite a bit and becoming more accessible and user friendly. And you don't have to have uh, the same kind of specialized software to process it or to view it. Uh, multiple different kinds of viewers. You can post 3D videos up onto uh, YouTube and look at them on your Google Cardboard if you want. You mm-hmm. know, so there's there's opportunities now that we're in a much more digital age than uh, than existed even just two decades ago. Yeah, and and there's uh, 
you know, we just may as well dive into 360 degree photos or even panoramic photos. They don't necessarily have to be 360 degree, but there are, man, this should have been my app of the day. Um, But there are definitely ways um, that you could do this pretty easily. Every smartphone on the planet right now that can take a panoramic photo, which I think is most of the higher end ones, you know, the, the, you know, iPhones to high-end Samsungs and Android devices and things like that. There's probably a pano setting in your uh, in your camera app. And that's how, if you've ever wondered, if you're scrolling through Facebook and you see somebody with a, three, with a photo that's not even 360 degrees, but it shows a little symbol and you can move your phone around, or if you're on desktop, you can move your mouse around on the uh, on click and drag on the photo and kind of get perspective. The way people do that is they basically just upload a photo Facebook's actually done this really well. They haven't put restrictions on it and say it needs to be this big. It's basically a photo that's larger than the space that contains it. And that's really it. So if your photo's bigger than what Facebook wants to display, then it will turn it into a, a movable photo photograph. Now, if you take that a step farther and you take a really sweet panograph, panoramic photo, you know, usually you can go, I think, about... Um, about 100 to 120 degrees of field of view, depending on how fast you're moving. The faster you go, the the worse it will stitch everything together. But if you take a nice panoramic photo and then upload that, you, I mean, obviously, if these are for like site photos, you probably don't want to put them on Facebook. But if it's for public outreach, uh, you certainly can do that. And you can show, you know, a really cool, it's a really cheap way to get interactive with the site. People can move around like they're actually standing there and then zoom in, zoom out and check out cool things. Um, another cool way to do that is Google has an app and I, the name is escaping me. I'm going to have to put it in the show notes. Uh, I used it a few years ago. Oh, I think it's the Google street view app. They have a way to, yeah, they have a way to actually create a 360 degree, um, spheroid, uh, photo that you can actually drop into Google street view or just use yourself. And it has these like panels coming all the way down from your feet up to the sky and in 360 degree directions. And you basically move the device until it highlights the panel. It'll take the picture itself and you move around until you have all the panels taken. And then it creates a spherical 360 degree picture that it, it, if you want, like I said, it will drop it onto Google street view. So if you've ever seen those taken by other people, that's how they did it or they did it some other way and uploaded it. But Google makes it really easy. Um, But like I said, it's not just for Google. You can just keep that photo and use it in something else that will display that. So, have you ever have you ever seen that, Paul? That particular app, by any chance? Um, I th- I have seen it or something very similar to that, and it really highlights again you know, the, the the advantages that we have living in the certain age that we're in, and that you know you do it with your cell phone. Oh yeah. You, you, you don't have to go to get that specialized equipment. You don't have to go get that special three D camera. Uh, excuse me, a three hundred sixty degree camera. I've, Chances are that 360-degree camera does a better, faster job at it. Uh, but with your cell phone, you can quickly take the equivalent of my friend's <laughs> slideshow uh, very quickly, place it someplace, deploy it across the web so other people can see it and explore it at their own time, uh, mm-hmm. at their own leisure, uh, and experience it in a way that you really can't with the uh, with the slideshow. So, you know, the the, the barriers to entry to these things have have plummeted through the floor compared to what they used to be. I mean, yeah. a cell phone's an expensive thing. It's an expensive thing that we all have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as with all technologies, there's the Uber cheap way to do it, which is just to use your cell phone and and do that. And then I remember seeing, I don't know, if, I think it's a, I think actually it's sold by GoPro. You can get the, the 360 degree photo package from GoPro, which is essentially a plastic rig that has like 12 GoPro cameras jammed into it. <laughs> so it costs like $4,000. <laughs> it's no joke. But if you're creating professional 360 degree environments um, and if you're working for a museum or if you're at a, you know, someplace where you've got a lot of really cool applications for that, that might actually be something you get a grant for or, you know, put in the budget to have something like that. So you can create that really high quality 4K imagery in a 360 degree interactive format. So, you know, it wouldn't be out of the question. Yeah. And deploy it in a bunch of different ways. Um, we again, back at the, at the University of Pennsylvania Museum a long time ago, we were editing volumes uh, for different exhibitions. And one of the things that we did is we would scan images, scan photographs, uh, illustrations and the like. And then we would, uh, we had a database that we would deploy these different images for different purposes for web, uh, for the web, for the publication, for different, uh, for different articles that were going out in different places, uh, for our own 
digital content that was that was delivered in the um, on kiosks in the exhibition space and you know we'd go from just a, a couple scans and use it a whole bunch of different ways and it was you know it's something that you think uh, you, you would just naturally do it now but at the time it was pretty innovative that we could use one good scan in so many different ways uh, just because we had it all planned out beforehand. Well, now you don't even have to plan it out beforehand. You can fairly easily redeploy that same video, the same photograph, same 3D image. And I'm sure as we go through this, uh, any of these other different kinds of recordings across a bunch of different media to different audiences fairly easily. So that's, that's, that's a really cool uh, expansion of how we can interact with not just our colleagues, but also the general mm-hmm. public. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important to try to collect these data too, no matter what it is. If you can do it, if you can do it easily and it doesn't bust your budget really, um, then I think you should probably do it and uh, and save the info. Obviously, consider where it's going and all that stuff. But the archaeology is inherently destructive, so it might be the last chance you'll ever get to do something like that. You know, whether it's you know recording whatever, it might be the last time you ever see that. So. Yeah, and even if you're doing something that's not inherently destructive, like uh, like survey, if you're doing survey because there's going to be uh, construction activity in there and you have to record what was there, as soon as those bulldozers right. come in, <laughs> they're doing the destruction for you. So that our uh, in our photography episode last uh, our last episode, you know, you might be the last person to ever see that feature, that object. So it's worthwhile to try to record it as best you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You said. Uh, any way you can, I think. Uh, I should have written down the exact wording you used. But we've, we talk generally about you know images and text when we talk about recording. But you know there's a whole world of other kinds of recording here. And on our list, you've got a bunch of them. Do you want to jump in on some of these ideas? Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think sticking with, photo, sticking with photography for a minute, because it, it's okay. pretty much, it's pretty much tied to uh, 360 degree photos in a way um, is photogrammetry. Um, because mm-hmm. I, I want to knock out some of this photo stuff first because photogrammetry is actually becoming, um, it's becoming a more accepted way to do things. And really the only reason it wasn't is because people don't understand it. You know, they really understand the, the concept behind what does photogrammetry even mean? Photogrammetry is basically taking a series of photos, creating essentially a 3d model, um, or at least, a yeah, I mean, it's a 3D model. And then having that model be essentially measurable um, if you've got the right scales in there. It's not going to be measurable if you don't have some way to input the initial measurements. But um, if you have some kind of scale in there and you can tell the software, here's my endpoint, my start point, and here's how long it is, it will make the entire model measurable to the resolution that you set in there with the scale. And photogrammetry is great because it's super easy to do. Uh, I mean, you can't have the, the photogrammetry software these days, like Photoscan is incredibly sophisticated and it will take out a bunch of effects that, that you didn't even know you had in there. Like, you know, maybe you had a little shadow in there one time. If it's not in all the other photos, it's gone. It's like, he's not going to use it. Um, I mean, you have to have some halfway decent lighting. You might have to shade your object if it's a, if it's an artifact or something like that. But all you need to do is take a whole bunch of photographs. Um, I mean, the technical side of it is you need to have uh, 70 to 80% overlap on your photographs because it basically lines up points and features on those photographs and then, you know, creates this model. But, uh, but that's pretty much it. I mean, when you're talking about artifacts and maybe even features, it's really just a ton of photos that you need to take um, before it's going to work. And then you have to run it through steel it's going to be a while before you'll be able to create that model in the field, I think, because of the processing power required and the time required. But if you just collect all those photos, even if you never make a model out of it, but you store it in a folder for that site or feature called, you know, photogrammetry sequence or something like that, then you can always do something with it later, but at least you have the data. So you, you know, going back to, Hey, if it doesn't cost you any more time or money, go ahead and do it. And photographs are literally free because, you know, memory is practically unlimited and uh and we go from there so uh and i think along the lines uh we also have in our checklist 3d photos um and i think that's really getting into you know more along the lines of when we start talking about like vr and augmented reality and stuff like that um but you know 3d photos are are Again, you need special equipment to really kind of do a 3D photo unless you have your spacing right and you can run these through software and then use like Google Cardboard or something to see a site. But it's just one more way to visualize what's going on on a site, you know? 
Yeah. And uh, again, many, many different ways. And the hardware keeps on dropping. I think uh, here at the school, a number of years ago, when they first came out, Mm -hmm. we got a lot of flip cameras and students use them for a lot of different things, especially in foreign language. They would do little, uh, they'd do little scenarios, you know, one would interview the other or they'd, they'd act out something in whichever language they were studying and they'd record it on the flip camera. And that was great. And they used them a lot. Um, we still have a couple dozen flip cameras in our storeroom here and nobody's checked them out for years because everybody now has a much better video camera in their cell phone. Yeah. So, you know, I think that we just have to expect that all these different ways of collecting and displaying data are just going to get mm-hmm. easier and faster and more ubiquitous. You know, so it's not going to be a matter of having to bring out, you know, you said photogrammetry. I think the origins of that were, were, um, were aerial photos, you know, for oh, like yeah. um, maybe land surveying, but definitely for military applications where they would take scary stereoscopic images and measure the dis- the sizes and distances based off of those, uh, off of those, aerial photos, um, you know, now you can do photogrammetry yourself with your digital camera and some software and you don't need an airplane and big expensive cameras and, uh, and film that can print out Mm -hmm. something the size of a table. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can, you can do photogrammetry on any size object really. Uh, and if you're using a drone or something like that, you can do it on buildings or the entire landscape. I'd used, I used my drone to program a flight path and did about a quarter mile section of historic two track road out in the uh, Black Rock Desert. And I, I had to take uh, several hundred photos for that to work. But it, pre- it produced this this model that was like picking out, you know, little pieces of sagebrush and things like that and the ruts in the road and everything. And it was just a really cool way to visualize that. And it's not all just fun and games either. It's not just visual representation. With these photogrammetry models, they create what's actually a point cloud of the item. And when you create a point cloud of the item, you can do different surface treatments to that and look at it as like a relief map or other stuff, which, which tends to somewhat eliminate vegetation from the equation and have you just change your perspective and look at the image a little differently and things like features or maybe an old road that might've crossed it. Or in the case of these roads that we were, that we were recording, sometimes as everybody well knows that's ever driven a truck or something out in muddy areas, when you have like a, you know, someplace you can't get through, well, people go off to the side and they, they create their own little path and they do that for a while until the other one, you know, fixes itself. And then, and then they use that. Well, over the course of a hundred years, that little side path that somebody may have created or used is just obliterated by the desert and, uh, and really difficult to see unless you elevate your perspective and you can see it in a different way. So. Yeah, I, uh, I should talk to, you know, there's a, there's an archaeologist I know, uh, and I've been talking to him about coming on this show to talk about the work that he does in Kurdistan, but his his big thing, what he started with was looking at hollowways, you know, these, these paths that were traveled for centuries between one mm-hmm. site and another, and they formed kind of low depressions in the landscape. And you don't really notice them, you know, from, <laughs> from walking across <laughs> the fields. You can, if you know what you're looking for, but for the most part, they just disappear. But as soon as you get up above it, uh, then you see it. And I know that he does use photogrammetry from drones quite a bit in his project. So I'm not sure if he's using them to identify uh, hallways or if he's using them to identify any other particular kinds of features. But if we can get him on, he can uh, he can tell us what exactly he's doing with those drones and uh, and how he's using photogrammetry on his project. Yeah, that'd be really great. And as we're going to break here, um, uh, that that's a good point to say to anyone using some sort of technology in the field that we either haven't touched on or we have touched on, but not in the way that you're using it. Um, I'd like to hear from anybody that uh, is using technology from drones to photogrammetry to whatever. And uh, we'll bring you on the show and and uh, get your perspective on, on how you're doing it. So that'd be fantastic. All right. Well, we are going to go to break. And for this break, um, actually... Don't hit the skip button because we're going to talk about our new store where you can find all kinds of things from tote bags to T-shirts with uh, a number of designs on them, not just the APM logo. And uh, and it's a building library of designs that we're working on. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back in a minute. All right. So I wanted to highlight real quick our new place to get swag for the Archaeology Podcast Network and also a way for you to highlight your designs um, based on archaeology on our store because we can do that. And I and I know that there's a way that we can cut this out and, and, and have... Um, uh, and have your designs actually be beneficial to you from a monetary standpoint and for the APN. So we each get a little bit of a cut. 
Um, but tpublic.com and tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash arcpodnet. That's long. If you just type in arcpodnet, you'll find our site, but you can find all kinds of stuff. Paul, you're on the site now and you've never seen it before. Um, why don't you click on one of our designs and uh, just see what you see? All right. So I'm going to click here on the Archaeology Podcast Network logo with the pointing trowel because I like that. And so here I, and so here I am, uh, typical T-shirt page here, brattles, adult apparel, kids, home goods, cases, and stickers. Um, and I've mil- got a million different colors of shoes, uh, different T-shirts, and in uh, different sizes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you scroll down that page uh, on each one of those designs, you'll see a number of other products. You can also get that design on and they also have their own color selections. Now, uh, if you're listening to this in real time, uh, TeePublic did tell me just this week that they have kind of a bug on color selection on some of the items, but they're fixing that because some of them only had like one color you could choose from, but they are working on that. But there's an iPhone case down here. Well, not iPhone, but all the phone cases, laptop case, uh, a really cool sticker, wall art. You can get a big APN tapestry. Um, notebook, coffee mug, uh, pillows, tote bags, um, all kinds of stuff. So it's pretty cool. And there's a lot of stuff on there. Yeah, there really is. I'm going to look at the notebook and wait, why are you putting a notebook? This is the, uh, the tech, the tech podcast, right? <laughs> it, that's what they had. <laughs> In all fairness, I love notebooking at it. Spiral, hard, spiral, hardcover. Ooh, nice. Yeah, there actually is a promo. They just sent me a few items, and one of them was the notebook, actually, with the I Dig Dead Things skeleton on the front. And, uh, you know, it's a relatively straightforward notebook. It's just a ruled notebook. Uh, you know, it's probably not not exactly field-ready because uh, we destroy stuff and it's not right in the rain. But it's a halfway decent notebook if you're going to take paper notes. Um, I, don't, I don't recommend it. But if you're going to do it, at least use our notebook. Well, I take paper notes all the time when I go to lectures. I, I prefer it over taking notes on tablets and other devices. So, uh, so yeah, I will. Well, well, now you can have a paper notebook from the APN. So there you go. <laughs> all right. So check out our T Public store again at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash arcpodnet. But if you just go to tpublic.com and that's T E E public dot com and type arcpodnet a-r-c-h-p-o-d-n-e-t in the search bar you'll find our store if you type archaeology we're starting to show up in more of those results too because there actually are a fair number of archaeology themed things on t public which is also kind of cool so again if you have any designs send them over to me and uh we'll we'll get them up there you can either donate them to the apn so we can make a couple bucks off each one of these or we'll work out a deal to anything that sells on yours you'll get a few pennies and we'll get a few pennies and we'll all make a little bit on our side hustle. So go check that out. And uh, the links will be up on the Archaeology Podcast Network page at arcpodnet.com forward slash shop. Back to the show. All right. We are back on the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 71. And we are talking about site recording, but not site recording the physical things that we normally do, but um, or recording those, but in a different way. So we're looking at alternative things to either record or alternative methods to recording. Uh, however you want to look at that, just things that you might not think about in your day-to-day work as an archaeologist, whether you're on an academic site or on a CRM archaeology site or, or who knows what. But um, these are some things that you can take into account. So let's talk about uh, some more visually based things, which is, you know, often what we talk about here. Um, infrared. Paul, what do you know about infrared? I don't know a whole hell of a lot about it. I haven't used it a whole lot back in the film days. And I keep on saying, you know, back in the film days, because I used to do a lot of film <laughs> photography. Uh, I always wanted to get um, to get some infrared film and do a selfie of myself against a plain white wall because I'd heard that skin is mostly translucent to it. And so that I would see the veins in my arms and chest more mm-hmm. brightly. I thought that might be an interesting effect. And you always see those infrared pictures of like trees where the, the leaves in them go white and everything else is kind of mm-hmm. eatery black, but I've never actually played with it. I mean, I've wanted to for years and uh, never got the, the opportunity to do so. Uh, have you worked with it? Uh, you know, not really in archaeology, um, but I have worked with it in some other circumstances, like in my squadron in the Civil Air Patrol, we played around with it. And uh, I, I can definitely see, I can see more applicability in infrared if we're, um, if we're actually just trying to look for stuff. From a recording standpoint, 
I haven't heard of a particular use case where it's going to be useful to have the infrared data um, because you usually use the infrared data to go find other things. And what I mean by that is if you manage to have some kind of drone with an infrared camera or something, you could throw it up on survey. Out here in the desert, if it's a hot day, you can find historic sites like nothing because that glass and those tin cans and all this stuff, they're going to be, you know, twice the temperature as the surrounding ground. <laughs> I mean, they're really hard to pick up when if you don't have gloves on because they can get super hot. So infrared will pick up heat signatures like that and uh, and show you things that are hotter versus things that are cooler. Um um, you know, Middle Eastern sites, we use a lot um, of subsurface techniques, you know, GPR, uh, magnetometry and so on to, to get a sense of what what architecture lies below the surface. I wonder if you're in a place that, say, has stone foundations, but it's a mud brick site, uh, you know, a tell site, mm-hmm. if infrared would allow you to see the signatures of those uh, of those foundations easily. I don't know if anybody's tried that, but I, I think it would be worth a try. Yeah, and I feel like you'd have to wait until later in the day as well. So the ground has had time to heat up and then those stone foundations will, you know, cause the, even if they're buried slightly, you think they would cause that part of the ground to heat up at a different rate than the surrounding ground? That's what Uh, I would expect. Yeah. So that's an interesting thought. It'd be interesting to try that out. Um, Along those lines, you could use it on other historic sites for that same reason. You know, if you've got like some chimney fall that's covered in bricks or, you know, the bricks are covered in vegetation and stuff, those might be cooler than the surrounding ground or something like that um, or or any other sort of uh, rock feature. And actually, anywhere where the ground, it's it kind of, you can kind of look at it similar to GPR where you're looking at different densities of things, uh, ground mm-hmm. penetrating radar. But you're looking at density, different densities are going to be different heats as well. You might not be able to read it as well, but um, different densities are going to, you know, accumulate heat in different ways. So, yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, and they also make... I don't know how applicable this is, but I'm just going to mention it because it's really cool. They make infrared adapters for, I know they make one for the iPhone. I'm sure they make one for, with like a mini HDMI port for um, Android phones, but uh, it turns your, it it has an infrared camera on it that you use with an app and you can use your, your iPhone as an infrared detector, basically with the screen right there. Um, A guy at my civil orbital squadron had one and he's using it on us and seeing, you know, a little heat map of ourselves, which is really cool, Uh but it has an, yeah, it has an incredibly short range though. You know, it's meant to be like, right in front of you using stuff like that. So, yeah. So it wouldn't work to hook it up on your, uh, on your drone. Uh, not so much. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> the, an infrared sensor for a drone. Like a camera is going to be pretty expensive and you're going to need a drone that can actually fly it. You can't just hook that to your average DJI drone because they have their own platforms and their own things. So you're going to need some sort of custom drone or uh, a drone that has a, a custom mount on the bottom that you can just, you know, create mounts for other things. And then you either just turn it on and fly it, or you're going to need a way to interact with that from the ground, whether it's through your radio or a tablet or something like that. Like I said, you can't just turn it on and let it go and record whatever you record, but, uh, which is how they used to do early days when they'd throw a camera onto like a radio controlled airplane, <laughs> just hit, hit play <laughs> and let it go <laughs> or hit record. And, um, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Again, like we said at the last segment, if you're using any one of these, uh, these off the wall techniques, uh, that not a lot of people are using, then let us know. And, uh, and we'll talk about it. So, all right. Well, what are some other things that we can talk about here? Um, it seems like we've got, yeah, go ahead. Um, Checklist, uh, again, another visual one is augmented reality. Yes. And obviously, augmented reality is being pushed heavily right now. Uh, the device manufacturers, Apple features it, for example, very prominently in their uh, in their ads for their newest phones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's something that we're all getting kind of used to. Um, but I think it has some interesting applications, maybe not for the, the recording side of it, but definitely for some of the display of our data. And so when people first started coming out with augmented reality for their cell phones, you know, and you take a piece of paper with uh, some symbol printed on it and then you look at it through your cell phone and you see whatever model that you could then turn around. uh, One of the first things I thought was, oh, my God, I can't wait till somebody designs and maybe somebody has at this point. But until somebody designs an augmented reality app that recognizes that you're standing in front of the Parthenon. Mm-hmm. And you look through your phone, and you can see the reconstructed Parthenon with the with the Elgin marbles there in place, <laughs> and the painting, the right colors, and everything. And so you could look around at the um, at 
the the temple as it's supposed to be or supposed to have been in the past uh, instead of just the ruins. And you could see that as an overlay to give yourself as a tourist a better understanding of uh, of what mm-hmm. the site was like. And there are any of you know, hundreds, thousands of sites around the world, major tourist draws that I think would really, really benefit from something like that. So if it hasn't been done, I just gave away a great idea. <laughs> well, there there are people working on uh, working on stuff like that. Um, there's a company called um, Lithodomos VR, and and again, that's more virtual reality, which we're going to talk about a little later. And we actually interviewed them on this show a while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're working on more of a virtual reality thing, which we'll talk about because all this stuff that we're talking about really can be added together to make a really amazing virtual reality experience. Um, because like Paul said, with augmented reality, you need some sort of device to look through. It's augmenting your reality. That's what that means. So you're looking at an actual live scene, but you're either holding up a tablet or a smartphone, or you've got some glasses on or something like that when they figure that out, that actually display stuff on those lenses um, or on your screen that's not there, right? That's uh, that's true augmented reality. And the other catch is the things on, that you're seeing are are dynamic for lack of a better word, which means that if you, I mean, one easy way to actually play with this right now is to download the Ikea furniture app or whatever the hell they call it. You can place a piece of furniture in your room. It scans your floor, knows how big it is, does it really fast. And you place a furniture piece of furniture in your room. And when you move your phone around, that piece of furniture stays digitally in place. So if you were to look around and then, yeah, and then come back around behind you, then it's still there. Um, and one of the ways I really see this being effective for archaeology, I'm still a huge fan. I mean, we got to do baby steps. So once we once we really, really figure out digital site recording, which we're getting dangerously close to really doing that. And I and I don't mean people haven't been doing it. Just like we mentioned in a couple episodes ago, uh, it's just not a standard thing yet. You know, you can't go to 10 different people and hear a similar answer for what they do for digital site recording. So once that becomes a little more accepted, a little more the norm rather than kind of an odd thing to do. And, and there's a little few more standards and regulation in place on, on how things are being collected. We can take the data that's being collected real time and display it onto an augmented reality module within your tablet. Why not? We already have XYZ data. We know where the object is. Um, in some cases, we even know what it looks like because we've already taken a picture of it or we have a standard icon that might represent it. And my vision is, you know, you got tablets recording out in the field and that information is continuously or at least periodically being transmitted back to the primary tablet. And that crew chief, who's probably got the primary tablet, can just flip to the augmented reality map mode, hold it up across the site and see visually. They just watch little silos or little flags or something pop up saying this has been done. This has been done. This has been done. And, uh, and they'll already know it. And then they'll also see which ones haven't been done. And there's ways to do that with like smart pin flags and stuff, which I'm kind of working on on the side, but, um, that's my vision for augmented reality. And, and then take that a step farther. We're supposed to be talking about stuff we're recording. We're not really doing that, but anyway, (laughs) you know, that could be extremely useful if you're working on say a multi-layer site, multi-period site, and you're working down in the trench and you have to remove one period of, uh, of occupation debris in order to get farther down. And, uh, you as a crew chief want to make sure that, uh, you're understanding the phasing of the site properly. That could be a real strong tool to just be able to stand at the, uh, at the edge of the trench and look through and see what's been done, you know, day by day, mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the season and get an understanding of whether you think that how, what you're current understanding of the set of the phasing of the site or at least of that trench uh, is correct. You have another check on it because you'd be able to go back and replay those events. So that could be, uh, mm-hmm. that could be quite useful. It's not recording, but it'd be tied in very intimately to the, uh, to the digital recording and then would be immediately fed back into the, the stream of your understanding of your interpretation of the site. Right. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Um, Man, I, just the possibilities on this stuff is just endless. And you know that the funny thing is we haven't talked about anything that's not actually possible now. It's just nobody's funding that for archaeology. <laughs> and archaeology yeah. is well known for stealing other people's technologies and using them for ourselves uh, because very few people develop for a small field like this. But I, I'm not even aware, and I, I try to keep a pretty good toe in this uh, field, but I'm not even aware of another field that's actually doing a similar thing, and we could just adopt it for our own purposes. If I'm wrong, please let me know, whoever's out there. But, um, you know, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'll just use something that's already built if it's done. Um, but that's what I want to do for archaeology. So 
All right. Well, we've got a few more things we want to talk about before the end of this segment. Um, let's let's bring in some stuff that I'm willing to bet almost no one's thought about. Let's go outside the box here, right? Yeah, yeah, way outside the box. So we'll we'll start with one that's not too far outside the box. Um, we've been talking about you know audio. Oh, that's not that far outside the box. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people aren't doing it. No, they're not doing it, and. And the one, one of the big reasons I'm bringing it up for two reasons. One is as cultural resource management archaeologists, as part of the section 106 process, we are supposed to assess the potential impacts of, uh, of an undertaking on a resource, right? That's what we're, that's what we're supposed to do. So we -hmm. always think visual, but if one of the potential impacts is actually auditory, like, you know, if you're recording a sacred Native American site that's actually in use today still, um, you know, by the local uh, the local tribe or the local group that's there, and they're putting in an open pit mine right next door, or they're putting in a, a really loud, uh, you know, oil oil rig or something like that, you know, whatever it might be, that could have a massive negative effect on that site. Um, and, and, you know, even if it's not currently being used, it could still have a massive negative effect on that site if that site becomes listed on the National Register, which is really the question. Um, and that will, it will, it will take away from it. Now that doesn't mean from a development standpoint that it's still not going to get built, but those effects have to be at least taken. And one way you can tell, or at least get in the record for later on, if that does ever get listed is you could record some audio, even just on your smartphone of what it's like in the, you know, in the pristine environment without any heavy machinery nearby, just record a minute's worth of audio and, and see what it sounds like. See what, you know, make sure it's not too windy because um, you, you don't want to blow your speaker out. But if it's not very windy and you can get everybody to be quiet for a second and just stop moving, just sit and listen. And it's actually a good exercise anyway. Just sit and listen and, and see what it would have been like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago sitting on that spot. You know, what would it have sounded like? Probably a lot more animals. <laughs> no sound of distant cars or airplanes or anything like that. But uh, no, that's great. You know, maybe, um, you know, with the, the photographs that you have to take uh, in, during CRM, you've got, uh, you have specific guidelines. You have the format. It's got to be in TIFF. Uh, it's got to be at least what you said, 10 megapixels in resolution. Uh, I wonder mm-hmm. if down the road, yeah, we're going to see uh, similar regulations about sound. That it has to be recorded in a, in a certain in a certain manner, so that you can have a, a regular baseline that you can compare before and after, or you know, d- across different sites as well, uh, as part of just the the, the general documentation to, to br- bring into the whole impact statement of the uh, of the process of, of doing new construction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. Wouldn't be surprised if uh, if down the road we're going to see that we're going to actually see more people be more aware of that, um, you know. And it's you, you were talking about uh, you said an oil rig. Well, as if somebody's building a refinery, for example, and it wouldn't just have to be a refinery. There are plenty of other things that are really stinky, right? Uh, yeah. And if you have a sacred site that suddenly is going to find itself downwind of some industrial site, even though the industrial site doesn't impinge upon that sacred site directly uh, in its physical footprint, it certainly could by the, by the smells that are introduced to the environment. And that would be uh, detrimental to that, to that religious site. Uh, so yeah. go out, the, out of the box and think about smell, how we record that. I have no idea <laughs> what kind of equipment we'd use to record that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure either. Some sort of uh, some sort of Geiger counter for scent. I just saw this weekend a, like a handheld, basically dosimeter um, that actually sounds like a little Geiger counter. And that what that is doing, it's reading radioactive particles in the air and, and telling you how many there are and whether or not you're going to be safe. But there, if you know, there should be a way to uh, there should be a way to record smell. That's something we'll have to look into. I'm not really sure. I mean, smell is a is a chemical, you mm-hmm. know. Smell is a a thing that we can record, and not smell, but sense. Sense are things that we can record um, because they are just a chemical composition of the air. So, really, what you would all you would need is to, if you wanted to tell whether or not it's being affected, you you might not be able to tell whether it's not being affected negatively, but you really could just take a, a sealed up jar and almost just close it right there on the site, you know, just open it, let it sit open for a minute and then close it. And then if you had some way to read that and you knew that it wasn't going to be contaminated, then you could do that now and then do that 
later on when the uh, when something's being built there, and then do a comparison analysis on those two samples and see uh, see how it's being impacted by smells. And this might not help you for getting something not built, but it might help later on when the thing is already built and then it's causing problems. You'll have at least a baseline to go from. And I don't know if that would even work. I'm just trying to think how how would we actually do this. And, uh, and air, air samples are one way that I think we could actually do that. Um, at least, like I said, to have a baseline and then a uh, and then a control that, and then a current sample that says, you know, what's in this. But I don't know how to do that. You have to send it off to a lab somewhere. Well, before we go too far off the uh, the rails on smell here, um, <laughs> and before we go yeah. into taste, which would be really strange, um, you, know, oh, yeah. you were talking also about audio and um, and recording you know, baseline sounds. I was talking about as well. Um, but audio as a as a tool. I mean, here we are recording a podcast. Um, now I have half a years of recording podcasts under my belt, and you've got a few years of it, and uh, and you're involved in a whole bunch of them uh, on the on the archaeology on the archaeology podcast network. A lot of projects, especially on the academic side, have some sort of a web component, right? They've got a blog going. Mm-hmm. says about you know what they're doing day to day during the project and you know some of them are good some of them are not so good they're ones that go for years and years like the Chatalhuyuk ones and they're ones that are thrown up once and then you know used for part of the first season and then basically become abandoned but it's still all very heavily image and text and it seems to me that you know, we again we all have our cell phones we can record audio with them pretty quickly it's another avenue that uh, that archaeologists have to record what they're doing for future generations or for other people, for expressing certain concerns, certain discoveries, whatever it is that they want to uh, about their work with their colleagues, but then also broadcast it if, if need be out to a public. So you can use it then for uh, preservation purposes, but also for this public archaeology, which is something that we touch on here and there, um, mm-hmm. but probably want to delve into uh, as a field a little more deeply, because I really see that as you know, our world gets more and more packed, we're going to have to be better about reaching the public to tell them the stories that we want to tell them. And so recording our own audio is certainly a, a powerful tool that we can use. Yeah. And along the lines of public outreach, we mentioned virtual reality earlier. And, you know, the the best way to preserve a site is to have no one ever touch it again. (laughs) That's the best way to do it. And um, and, well, I actually I think there's one level higher than that. The best way to preserve a site uh, is to actually record it without destroying it as much as you can. And then you know, and then not have anybody touch it. Um, and one of the ways, like we've been saying, is to just collect all this information and let's get this into a virtual reality simulator so people can go visit these areas, but not just visit them from a visual standpoint, visit them, vis- visit them from an auditory and in even a sensory standpoint, you know, all the senses. So if you could collect, you know, what is, what does the sage brush smell like when it's blooming or something like that? You know, what do the wildflowers smell like there at that time of year? Um, you know, hell, what does it smell like when all the cattle come through? I think we know and probably wouldn't pay for that on a ride, but, um, you know, what is, what does that really feel like to be on that site? And then can we simulate it back in time? So I mentioned Lithodomos VR. They're a company that we've, we'll link to them uh, because we've interviewed them before, but they got a ton of funding this last year. And I actually haven't looked to see what they have coming out lately, but they've been working on some, yeah, you know, they're starting with some bigger sites uh, like some Greek and Roman sites that are, that are famous and they're making it so you can walk around and like almost like interact with quote locals that they've programmed in and then, and then really see everything in photogrammetric quality, not this weird second lifestyle, you know, uh, cartoonish type video game quality, but actual real layered like photographs on top of these structures and structures that have been rebuilt to look like they were in their uh, full glory. So I'm really excited to see what they can do and, and not only what they can do, but how they can make that um, accessible to the public in a way that's not expensive and you don't need a whole bunch of expensive gear to actually look at it. But you know, things like Oculus VR and stuff like that's coming down in price. You can get an Oculus for 350 bucks, which is, you know, way cheaper than it was a few years ago. So, you know, that's, um, you know, in gaming, definitely that that's where the, uh, the, the oh, yeah. interest lies. 
now. And so I think a lot of that is going to be, you know, leaking out into other things, including especially into our field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Gaming, whether you like it or not, I mean, there's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So people are developing for those worlds, but there's no reason we can't take uh, the technology that's developed over there and use it here. And I'm going to mention one more thing um, because it's, it literally is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Um, I was at the, uh, well, the Dune Center is called down in Guadalupe, California a few days ago. And I don't know if everybody saw the articles going around about the old Cecil B. DeMille uh, shooting site for the Ten Commandments out in the dunes that had these huge sphinxes and this massive set that they created that they actually found and are excavating now uh, periodically. Did you remember seeing that, Paul? No, I haven't seen that. That's that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, it is really cool. And this movie set was from like 1923 or something like that. And then they basically just, they gave some of them away, but they basically just buried everything. And the locals pretty much forgot about it. And then somehow it got relocated and found. And now there's an archaeology company and some other people out there kind of doing it on a volunteer basis out there excavating up these what look like Egyptian artifacts, but it's all plaster, wood, and wire. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, we went out to this dune center and we went to check it out. And they had, uh, now, I don't know if you've seen this as well, Paul. There were some people using like uh, an Xbox Connect um device which basically is like a home radar it knows how far away you are so you can interact with it and you can move and it reads your body movements and puts those on the screen well somebody developed using that and a projector like an lcd projector pointed down onto a uh, box of sand and you could take a little shovel or a rake and move the sand around and it changes the topo lines and you can make um, you can make water by digging below whatever they call the the low point you can make little rivers by you know making a channel from one to the next and you're just moving sand around and you're seeing this image displayed on there that's putting on ground and water and things like that and when you hold your hand over the box it's like uh, it simulates a uh, cloud cover so it's like it starts raining in that area and drops a bunch of water there. And they had one of these at the Dune Center. And I swear to God, I could have played there all afternoon on that thing. It was fascinating. Was that related at all to the, um, what's the Microsoft product that they, uh, the, the augmented reality goggles there's? That, well, that was the Xbox Connect that they, that Microsoft invented. And I don't know if the no, I'm Microsoft the, VR they stuff. Have, um, yeah, they have a, a goggle set and it's tied into, uh, to Minecraft. And so some of their demos had, you know, Minecraft worlds, castles and things, you know, you put on the, the headset and you can see them, you know, coming up out of the ground around you and, you know, up on the table across the room and things like that. And, uh, we'll put that in the show notes when I remember the name, because I'm, just drawing a blank on it at the moment, but it got a lot of press a couple of years ago. It's HoloLens. Thank you. HoloLens. Yeah, I just, I know I had part of it in my head. I had to look it up. Yeah. And I don't know where HoloLens went. Um, HoloLens is, is another augmented reality type application, you know, a set of goggles and stuff that, that you basically wear. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if you can just buy those yet. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, yeah, I don't think they up the consumers before. in the consumer space. I think that they were still just a, a proof of concept or experimental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was really cool what they were doing with, and all these things are pointing in the direction that, uh, that we're going to go over the next five years or so. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I, I see we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Microsoft has a whole website, of course, for the HoloLens. So we'll see, we'll see what they do with that. Um, Okay, well, we've gone long on this segment because, you know, we'll, we'll make up for it in the app of the day segment. So that's it for the regular part of the show. If you're recording anything uh, special or in a different way, let us know. Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. All our contact info is on the website. Um, hit us up at ArcPodNet on Twitter or ArcPodNet on Facebook. We'll be back in a second with the app of the day segment. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. 
Okay, we're back with the Architect Podcast, episode 71, and this is our App of the Day segment. Paul, what have you brought for us today? Okay, so I've got one that I actually use myself and I've used for a number of years now. So, um, And this one I think probably has use for a lot of people, but uh, but archaeologists can also probably make a very specific use of it, even though it's not directly pertaining to archaeology or science in general. Um, so what I'm talking about is called Gas Cubby. Uh, it's available on iOS. It's been around for a number of years, and I've used it for a number of years myself. Uh, it used to be available in two versions, a premium version and a free version. I had the free version, uh, and then it was bought up by another company called Fuely.com. And Fuely is busily taking, they kind of rolled it. They had a similar sort of product. They rolled some of their stuff into a new product, and they're incorporating Gas Cubby, which is still available for free, into their new app, Fuely. So going forward, everything's going to be in Fuely. I have not used Fuely yet, but they're, they're converging the, uh, the look and feel and the data sets and such of these. And so I think that one of the concerns they have is that people like me have years worth of data collected on them. Now, what it is, it's, a, um, it's an application to manage your car or your fleet of vehicles. And, um, and it goes pretty deep into what you can measure with it. I mean, you can, you can set reminders for your, uh, for your tune-ups, for example, or for regular maintenance. Uh, I use it almost exclusively for keeping track of my mileage. We have three cars, um, a newer Subaru that tells me its own gas mileage. And I'm happy with that. But, an old, but our other cars are 1999 CRV. And a 1985 Toyota Land Cruiser that's my little pet project. And those ones are getting old enough that, you know, they are not particularly consistent. And usually when I have like some, especially on that old Toyota, when I have a sudden drop in my fuel economy, it indicates to me that that something needs to be fixed. <laughs> so I use these uh, and I log every time I gas them up, I, uh, I log how much it cost me, how, uh, how much gas it took, and it records for me then my mileage. So that's extremely useful for me personally. And why I think this would be useful for the archaeologists is because uh, especially contract archaeologists do a lot of driving. And so it's a way to keep tabs on it. But then especially with the, uh, you know, I use it also to keep track of the oil change intervals, you know, so I, it'll, for me that it's been, you know, six months since I last changed the oil in one of my cars. And, I don't have to remember. I don't have to set a separate reminder. It's right there on this app on my phone. Uh, Fuely as a company is also now you sign up, you get a, um, you sign up, get an account on their site. I don't know what they do with your data. So if that's a concern, you might want to look into that deeper. Uh, but you can also go to their website and manage your entire fleet and look at statistics across them. Uh, you know, keep all your logs and your records. Uh, of all your cars. And so it's something, you know, it's also something that's useful probably for a lot of people since we're such a car focused culture in the U S most people have at least one car. And it, I think is a very simple, straightforward way to keep track of one's vehicles and how they're doing and how they're being used. So um, yeah, very short and to the point, but that's my, uh, that's my app of the day, gas cubby soon to be fuel. And I looked it up, Gas Cubby, and it says by Fuely Light. So if you just want Gas Cubby, yeah, like you said, they still have it available. Yeah, they still have it available. On their fact, they say that they're oh, merging okay. them, though. Oh, so their development is going to go into the main one, which you can get for free. Um, and then the paid parts are for additional features and to get rid of ads. Yeah, Gas Cubby sounds so familiar to me. I used to use one. I, this is all kind of a light green color, a teal or whatever. I used one that was brown and like a creamy mm-hmm. color and brown. Was that yep, the one? That was okay. The one. Man, I used that a long time ago and I, for some reason I just stopped. I, I didn't I didn't keep on with it, but I used it for a while, especially when my wife and I were were really traveling around a lot and uh and I did use it to keep track of mileage. Um I don't think I ever actually subtracted mileage off my uh my taxes cuz I never never really had enough to meet the the minimum standard deduction, but uh, if you are working for business, I mean, you need a way to track your mileage in your car and it'd be nice to track your maintenance and all that stuff. And 
I mean, I it had a lot of functionality. I can I just looking at the screenshots, it's got even you know way more now, and it's just a it, it's a really good thing because you that stuff kind of sneaks up on you, especially when you're traveling around and uh, and even if you're not, uh, you know that those maintenance kind of cues they uh, they'll sneak up on you if you're not paying attention. And but but like anything, the data in this is only as good as what you put in. <laughs> But what it, uh, and that's what it helps with, you know, if you, a lot of people keep, you know, spreadsheets on their computer, but then there's a, a gap between when you filled up your car and when you've remembered to put that data into your computer. And so you miss it you, and it falls by the wayside. Uh, Gas Cubby, Fuely uh, is one of these programs that's much deeper in terms of the kinds of data they can collect and what you can do with those data. Uh, then I use it. I use it very strictly just for keeping track of oil changes and, and fill-ups. Um, but even at that very low level, it's, it's really handy for me because I go to fill up the car and my phone is in my pocket. So it takes me no extra to just quickly log it and be done. And now I've got that record and I didn't have to think about it. So the, the, the friction about using it is so much less than the friction of just about any other system you could use for logging your, your cars, your fleet of cars. And I don't know if there's an upper limit to the number of cars, but it's something, or if you can merge data from different accounts, uh, but it would be interesting to see if somebody who actually has a fleet could make use of this. Hmm. That's really cool. And uh, I'm just looking at one of the reviews here by a guy named Big Dude, uh, Big with two Gs. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny. He, I don't know if he, if he really is a big dude or not, but he must have had a little, little Freudian slip or something in here because he called it gas chubby. So big dude accidentally called it gas chubby, which I think is <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have made fun of it had his name not actually been Big Dude. <laughs> no. So, all right. Well, uh, speaking of tracking things, that's what I'm going to talk about now. Uh, my, so you may have seen, you know, we talk about a lot of tech on this show, of course. And uh, one of the worst things that can happen to you and every single person listening to this call that is a field archaeologist knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you, when you lose something, pretty much everything stops until you find it because typically that thing you lost is not like your pencil or whatever, you know, it's the, uh, it's the Trimble, it's the GPS, it's a tablet, it's something and you set it down and you just can't find it. And what's even worse is when, and I've seen this more than a few times is when you're walking back to the truck or you're back on survey and somebody realizes like a mile away that they don't have the thing that they're looking for. And now you got to go find it. So luckily there are, uh, a number of ways to to track those things back and most of them involve attaching some kind of little device to your thing that actually runs off of bluetooth so hopefully you don't lose your phone or something like that um, because that's typically what you'll hook it to uh, but you can actually um, link it to a tablet so if you're using like a field tablet from a company standpoint you don't want these little tile trackers hooked to somebody's phone then you could hook it to the company tablet and then be good to go there if it's the tablet you plan on losing, well, then you got another issue. But um, my wife got me one called the Tracker, uh, T-R-A-C-K, then capital R. And she actually got me just the Tracker Pixel, which is their smallest line. They also have the Tracker Bravo and a couple other things. Um, and I got to tell you, I listened to this podcast from a guy named Leo Laporte, big famous guy in the tech industry. Yeah, and he's got the Twit, the uh, uh, This Week in Tech and all that stuff, the Twit Network. And lately, they've been really, really pushing the Tracker Bravo or the Tracker system, basically. And he's like, oh, I got trackers on all my stuff. And I used to think that, you know, he really does use all these things. And uh, and he's not just doing this for the three-minute ad that I just had to listen to about it. But I'll tell you what, this tracker was a total piece of shit. It, <laughs> it just like I had it in my wallet because I, I often walk out of the house and just forget my wallet. And I was hoping it would go off when I, like, hit the elevator or something. And... Uh, but what I found out was, you know, you can set a Wi-Fi safe zone for it. So it's not actually tracking you in your area there, um, which doesn't do me any good. First off, because the Wi-Fi in my house, if it's not going to go off, then what the hell good is it to begin with? Um, but I was finding that even when I had the Wi-Fi safe zone turned on, I had my wallet in a drawer by the door. I, I could still hear the damn thing going off with its little alarm because it would lose the Bluetooth connection to my phone. And when it loses that association with the phone, 
it would start just going off. And then okay, and there's a little button on it too. So you can push the button on it to actually ping your phone if you lose your phone. So it's two-way communication. And sometimes when I was sitting on my wallet and I had it sitting in there, my phone would start buzzing and, and the alert would go off because I, I triggered the little thing. You know, I basically butt dialed my phone with the notification from the tracker thing. And, um, and I just like... Uh, one time, just a, a week ago, and she gave me this on Christmas, and they're only like fifteen or twenty dollars. These little cheap ones. The app is totally free. Works for iOS and Google, um, and uh, and I don't know if it was just this device or if it's the whole line of devices. I can't tell you, but I we were actually walking to the movies from our house, and the damn thing started going off in my wallet, and it was sending me notifications, and my phone was literally right around the corner in my front pocket, and I was like, I am so done with this thing. I pulled it out, and I threw it in the trash, oh, no. and uh, <laughs> I was just like, I had reinstalled it probably five times. I had replaced the battery. They'll do free battery replacement, by the way. They're just right through the app. It'll say, hey, your battery's dying. You want a new one? And they'll send you a new one. I don't, I don't know how they make any money on that, but they'll send you a new battery. And I had tried everything and I just couldn't get it to work. I just couldn't get it to work. And I really want it to work. And maybe it was a, a defective unit. Maybe it was the tracker pixel that just isn't as good. Um, I will mention one other thing that they do that's kind of cool. If this actually works uh, is they have, they basically crowdsource your tracker. So when, when you lose it, when you lose association with it, it'll show you where it was last seen on the map. Cause if it's connected to a phone or something with GPS, then its location is always known. Um, but once you lose, once you break that connection, it doesn't have its own GPS. So you can't actually find it. However, other people with the tracker app, the tracker app is actually constantly searching for trackers. So it's looking for them all over the place. And I don't know if that's a battery. It wasn't draining my battery that much. So I don't know if that's a deal, but um, if another app actually sees your tracker. Now the person never knows. There's no information passed between each other that way, but you get a notification that it was spotted by somebody else and you don't know who that was. You just see it on a map now. So if you left your wallet at a restaurant and somebody happens to walk by or come into that restaurant with a, um, you know, with a tracker app turned on because they have one, it'll, it'll ping the network in the background and then notify you of where that location is and you can go find it. So that's pretty cool, but only works in an area where everybody has one, uh, you know, and, and there are a lot of them out there. This company has, has spent a lot of money on promotion, uh, which leads me to believe I just had a defective one. I don't really know, but I'm only bringing this up just to warn you possibly against the tracker pixel. If you're going to get some, maybe try one before you go buy 40 of them for all your gear and, and see how it's going to work. But there's also a whole bunch of other ones out there for that line. Tile is another really big one. Uh, just T-I-L-E. going to ask. Yeah. Have you used that? The tile? No, I haven't used Tile either, but I know people that have used it and they really like it. I was just given one uh, over the holidays. Uh, the the PA gave all the staff tiles nice. and, uh, and <laughs> yeah, which is nice. But uh, you could see the, the uh, in our department here, you know, and this is the mm-hmm. IT department. And it was pretty much right down the line between the ones that said, oh, this is great. I'm going to use this everywhere. And those like me who said, I don't lose things enough. <laughs> to care about them. So my daughter saw it and, uh, and, um, and immediately stole it from me. She said, you're not going to use nice. it. I'll take it. And so she has it. I've got to find out what exactly she's using it for. Probably just to find right. out where the dog is, um, and, uh, and how well it works. But I'm looking at, uh, at, at Amazon here and these trackers have three stars. Now three stars isn't a shitty product, but generally that's one that people are having tr- some troubles with. So it's yeah. probably worth looking at the, hundreds of reviews that are on here. Yeah. And I love the idea behind them. You go to their main website, which we'll have linked in the show notes. And one of the pictures scrolling by, it's actually got a whole bunch of products and things like a video game controller and an iPad and your AirPods and your keys and a set of headphones and stuff like that. And these things have a, one of those really super sticky, um, you know, adhesive backs to them. If you want to use that, you don't actually have to, you can just use a little key ring kind of thing. And, and that's how I had, I just had it sit inside of my wallet. Um, Mm -hmm. and you could stick it onto anything. So it's not necessarily for stuff that you lose all the time, but maybe you've got other people in your household and you can't find the remote control. How many people have searched for the remote control for the TV? Well, you could just hit a little button on whatever that's linked to and it'll start beeping and, uh, and you'll hear it. It makes this weird sound and you'll hear that. So you'll be able to find it. Um, so it's, I mean, it could be good for just household items, things that never leave the house if you're constantly misplacing them or you don't know that your your son grabbed it and took it into their bedroom and now they're gone for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. 
Well, I do think yeah. that this, as a general yeah. class of, uh, of objects, this is something that's probably useful for anybody that has stocks of equipment that go out in the field. You, know, you probably mm-hmm. don't want it on everything, but you know, there's certain things that are going to be expensive enough or critical enough to your work that, uh, that it might make sense to, uh, to, to hook, whether it's tile or tracker or mm-hmm. I interrupted you, but you started to say a few other names, I think. Uh, but as a general class, it seems like that could be useful for archaeologists. Yeah, those are the big names in the field right now, the ones that are putting a lot of development money into it. Hell, I want one on my backpack. You know how many times I sit my backpack down in like in like tall sagebrush or dense vegetation and then just like so if I if I forgot to put like some pin flags in the tree or something or some flagging tape, man, you'll spend more time looking for your backpack than you did looking for artifacts, just trying to find the damn thing again. So mm-hmm. um, it would be nice if I could just ping it with my watch or my phone and say, oh, shit, there it is. So. You're never that far away from it. Again, these things have a Bluetooth range, like I said, unless you're using the cloud sourcing uh, or crowdsourcing feature of Tracker. It is Bluetooth range. So if you are, if you don't have a crowdsourced one and you're more than, say, 30 to probably 90 feet away, depending on the quality of your Bluetooth, uh, you're not going to find it. <laughs> so don't go a mile away from your site before you come back and find it. Um, you know, maybe do a gear check. And if it's just laying on the ground somewhere, then you'll find it easier. But um yeah, you won't find it at all if you're a long ways away. All right. Well, I think that's it. I don't think I have anything else. Paul, do you got anything else? Um, millions of things for other episodes, I think. <laughs> well, that's good. That's always good to have other episodes on deck. So if you yeah, have any ideas for other episodes or apps that you're using, let us know. Um, I think that, uh, I think I did, Paul, you didn't mention it, but is your app available for Android as well? Do you know? I know. I think it's only iOS. It doesn't say so explicitly on their website, but uh, but all the examples, the screenshots, and everything else uh, seem to be iOS only. Okay. Well, for once, I had an app that was available for iOS and Google, um, which is great. And it also has Alexa skills. So if you have an Amazon Alexa, you can say, uh, hey, Alexa, or whatever the code word to turn it on is, and say, where's my wallet? You know, because that's what you called the thing in Tracker, and it will ping it for you. So, um, so that's pretty neat. Um, yeah, that's all I've got. Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech podcast and send us your suggestions, app suggestions and uh, gear suggestions and all kinds of stuff, whatever you want to talk about. And we will talk to you guys next time. Thanks. We'll see you, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Archaeotech podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.